The revolution is here. A movement of people free to live, work, and choose. We won't tell you what to think. We just demand that you think for yourself. This is Kibbe on Liberty. Hey guys, welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks. How is it out there? It's like hot as hell out there. Dripping, yeah. dripping. Yeah. Um, you guys have just published a book. When did it come out? May 10th. May 10th. Okay, so not brand new, but pretty new. Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. And and I really, I've, I'm only halfway through, I'll admit, but so pardon my ignorance on the second half, but I feel like it's a positive classical liberal response to the 1619 Project. Yeah. And my buddy Phil Magnus has been on um, dissecting the 1619 Project, but um, it's more a critique of what they're doing as opposed to we have this this positive, beautiful vision and history of how freedom and community and markets lift people out of oppression. And that I feel like that's what you've tried to write here. Is that a fair? Yeah. I think that's half of it, right? But the other half of it is how do we acknowledge the oppression that did occur in a way that makes sense to conservatives and libertarians? Right. We're not asking you to give up on the American project. What we're saying is, no, it was the violation of our liberal commitments yeah. uh, that led to what uh, black Americans experienced. And we want to be really, really honest about that and actually use that as an example to teach people about the value of private property rights, freedom of contract, and the rule of just laws. Yeah. But I think it is also, as you said, right, a positive project. We're not interested in simply just critiquing other people. People. We want to put forward, you know, a vision for how classical liberalism can actually lead to prosperity, uplift, and flourishing. So, um, I think you've got that absolutely right. That was definitely part of the goal. Yeah, and I like I like the the mindset of a process because I'm I'm a sort of a Hayek guy that thinks about life and problem solving and and America as a process of becoming something mm -hmm. better than it is. Mm -hmm. And and that that I think is is something that 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 conservatives particularly struggle with. They think that there was like this ideal thing and we got it right and then we lost it. And it's like, no, we're always figuring stuff out. Yeah, things have gotten a lot better for some Americans, right? Yeah. Things have improved immensely for them. Yeah. And so you can take two steps forward and one step back sometimes. Yeah, well, let's um, <clears throat> let's tell people who you guys are because uh, you're both academics and I use that in the positive sense of the term. <laughs> Maybe we'll pick on them a little bit later, but uh, Rachel, give us a little bit of background about your, your history and expertise. Sure, so I actually have a PhD in philosophy. I wrote my dissertation on David Hume on property rights and his critiques of John Locke. And uh, I've spent most of my career actually really focused on student programming. I've been in the liberty movement all my life. So I've been parts of Free Enterprise Institutes. I'm now running the Free Enterprise Center at Concordia University, Chicago, but I actually live in St. Louis, Missouri. And I always make a point of that because we talk about Love the Lou yeah. and some of the work we're doing on the ground in the community in St. Louis. It's really beautiful stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm having a great time at Concordia, Chicago, building up a kind of entrepreneurial mindset among our student body. So a philosopher. Yes. All right. <laughs> so I am an historian. I've got a PhD in history uh, from the University of Alabama, where I studied under David Beto, um, who we talked about just a moment ago. And uh, my area of specialization is 20th century, you know, uh, political, intellectual, and economic history. Um, and my first book was titled Getting Right with Reagan, um, The Struggle for True Conservatism, which looked at the evolution of the way in which conservatives viewed Reagan during the 80s quite hostily, oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. And then the sort of the creation of what, we, what I call the Reagan myth. Um, and 
at Huntington College now. Uh, this is my, I'm going into my third year. I teach pretty much everything because there are only two historians and uh, we have to teach the world. So um, really enjoying it there and really happy to have partnered with Rachel on this book. How did you guys find each other? Is this the first project you've done together? It is. Um, interestingly, like Rachel had this idea for what I thought was a really positive project, um, and she pitched it, I think, initially to my advisor, David Beto, who is a civil rights historian. He's written a book called Black Maverick about T.R.M. Howard, who's sort of a forgotten civil rights um, hero in many yeah. ways. Um, and so she, I think she pitched it to David, and David was like, I, I'm working on my New Deal book, which is <laughs> set to come out relatively soon. Um, and he goes, I just don't really have the bandwidth, the time to, to do this, but I have a student, although he doesn't specialize in, in sort of uh, civil rights history, he could help you out. He could be the historian to kind of provide the details because I, my sense was that you wanted a historian to partner with. Yeah, it wouldn't be right to write this book without a historian, but I turned out to be incredibly lucky. Marcus and I work really well together and uh, it's been a really exciting partnership. Yeah, and I think it, like you can't, um, you can't take this subject seriously unless you describe in sometimes vivid terms some of the horrific things right. that have happened um, driven by racism in America. and. And I, I want to get to Tulsa, but but not just yet, because I want to start with um, the way that you guys start the book, which is um, the 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 uh, the dangerous words social justice, mm. and and you point out that, that Hayek had a problem with this because for Hayek justice was um, for individuals, and social corrupted that because it it became hard to understand what that meant, and I think we're still struggling with that today, but. But to, to rehabilitate that phrase and try to understand people that use that phrase is something that you guys are trying to do. Yeah, so the term social justice, Hayek is assuming that people mean something like perfect material equality in mm -hmm. outcomes. Yeah. And of course, that is he is totally right to condemn that because you cannot have that without tyranny. And you see that clearly in David Hume's work as well. And so we think that's true, but we also think that in many cases, there's a way of thinking about social justice that actually makes a lot of sense from Hayek's perspective. Because what is he doing in the Constitution of Liberty? He's explaining the institutions that you have to have in order to experience freedom and economic flourishing. So if you're excluded from those legal institutions, yeah. you won't experience that, right? And so you will be a victim of basic, real individual crimes from your neighbors, from the police, from the court system, whatever it is. And so it will be just injustice, just plain injustice. You don't necessarily need the term social, but I think people now use the term social justice to refer to things that were bad happened in the past and we want to do right by that. Yeah. And it's often much more vague in their minds. And so if we can bring forward the classical liberal tradition of actually paying a lot of attention to, to the way that the growth of freedom affects regular people. Yeah. And it goes all the way back, Adam Smith, et cetera. They're all talking about poor people getting richer. Then we can show, oh, actually, we have a social justice tradition in classical liberalism. Yeah, I, and, and part, of, part of the mistake I think we make is when we understand the, the sort of uh, bad version of social justice, which is using force to redistribute wealth and, and to bring everybody down to mm -hmm. some equal level, um, we give up the word justice, too, mm, which right. is the entire basis of, of what I think liberty is about. It's, a, it's about those institutions that, that provide for um, equal treatment under law and all that stuff that, 
that I guess is controversial now, but I, I thought it was a thing. <laughs> so we don't use the term social justice ourselves, but we try to show some understanding to just regular Americans who do. Yeah. Um, but I think that we need to redeem the term injustice, right? These were just real injustices. Yeah. And we need to acknowledge them and know, understand that America has a kind of racial hangover from some of these terrible parts of our history. Yeah, yeah. By, by the way, not just America, like the... I, I'll sound like Dinesh D'Souza for a second, but <laughs> but um, the world of 200 years ago was yeah. was pretty repugnant by many of the standards that we would hold ourselves to today. Yeah, um, and and that's that's where some of the history comes in. I think I think it's good to point out some of the crazy stuff that people did and believed, mm. not just in our own history, but where those things came from. Yeah, I think I teach I teach Worlds of One uh, every single semester, and my students are always just like really shocked because I like to describe to them like what would have smelled like in Rome, right? To so just walk down the street with the chamber pots being sort of dumped, even though they did have running water, was for the elites, um, you know. 50% of, of, of newborns die or babies die, young children die by the time they're 10. I mean, they're exposing babies, the Romans are. I mean, it's a completely different world. And that world doesn't change until the Industrial Revolution, the advent of sort of uh, the bourgeois virtues going to Deidre McCloskey, right? The advent of capitalism um, yeah. and industrialization. And we can critique it, you know, we can, you know, talk about the environment and other things like that. But in, a, in the grand scope of things, you know, people are incredibly better off than they were before. I mean, it just the, the ability to walk into a supermarket and you have fresh fruit all year round, like in most other time, every other time in human history would have been considered just miraculous. And we just take all these things for granted. Um, and so one of the things I really always hope is that when they leave my class, they have a sense of, of awe, you know, yeah. uh, when they walk into the grocery store, I hope they just pause <laughs> and like, oh, that's what Dr. Witcher was talking about. I should appreciate this a little bit, right? Because yeah. um, it is really quite unique in the history of uh, of humanity. So yeah, I think of uh, AOC's much maligned comment that she made that when she said that her generation had never known true prosperity, and of course, mm -hmm. objectively speaking, she's growing up in the most prosperous area of the most prosperous country at the most prosperous time in the history of humanity. But the context is important, and if you didn't learn about mm -hmm. how people lived not so long ago pre-capitalism I think I think you can sort of lose track of, of of the progress we've made and you can't actually critique the mistakes we're making unless you have it in the context of you know, you know this system is lifting us everybody up and that's important not to throw away I think part of the uniqueness why I say America and our history of race because I totally acknowledge your point right you have all kinds of oppression is like normal for human history. Mm -hmm. I think the uniqueness of America is the promises we made. Yeah. I mean, that's actually why uh, people sort of hold us accountable in the way that they do. I mean, Brazilians get 10 times as many people coming over from West Africa, or being brought over, right, from West Africa, and many of them just die mm -hmm. from how hard and awful the labor is. And so, yeah, you hear conservatives say, well, you know, American slavery, I mean, people actually flourished and you had more black people and that's all true. But look at what we said, right? right. We said that we were all created equal. Yeah. And that's that black pro-constitutional tradition that you see from Phyllis Wheatley, you know, all the way through Martin Luther King Jr. saying, hey, let's hold America accountable to the promises it made. And that's what makes it stand out, right? The sins of, of our country. And it's one of the virtues of liberal society uh, you know, writ large is the fact of the the willingness to actually acknowledge these things, to discuss them in the public forum, right mm -hmm. in the press, etc. 
to to condemn the things that we did wrong and then to move forward. I mean, you don't see that in the Soviet Union. Um, you don't see that happening. The sort of public uh, condemnation, right? And you right. publicly condemn right. it. You're <laughs> yeah, you're in trouble, right? Um, and so I think that's something to sort of mm-hmm. emphasize as well. Like we're unique in the sense that we have these ideals. We're also unique in the sense that. Um, you know, the West, the liberal West is unique in the sense that there's a constant sort of self-criticism and trying to live up up to those ideals, even if we oftentimes fell short in the past. Yeah, the, the, the much maligned now Thomas Jefferson was well aware of the contradiction oh, yes. from, from the Declaration. And that that was the, the value proposition of, of Dr. King when he spoke in front of the Lincoln Memorial. There's, there's an un, there's a promissory note. Mm-hmm. Right. And that that is, that this goes back to this process without forgiving the stupid and evil things that happened in America, you can say that we're, we're in a process of trying to achieve that truly radical goal of, of equality, mm. which, I mean, which was different than almost anything else anywhere else in the world. Yeah, and so you can contrast a perspective like that, which is just more nuanced, with a perspective that says, well, race, you know, racism was so fundamental to the founding that the, that the founding is fundamentally flawed. Yeah. And we're saying, no, 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 you don't want to go that direction. Right, right? right. You want to hold on to the accountability of the founding and fulfill it. So I love the quote, and I always quote Frederick Douglass when he says it's not the Constitution, it's whether we have honor enough and courage enough to live up to the Constitution. And yeah. I think that's part of the larger sort of thing that we're trying to do with the book is we feel like we have conservatives on the one hand who present a, a vision of America, that America is great, it has this wonderful founding, the ideals, etc. And it's a very patriotic history. And that's in a lot of textbooks at the high school level. And then you have at the college level, you have this other narrative that looks at American history and just laser focused on like, no, like maybe liberalism is even tainted by racism. And maybe we need to jettison liberalism for socialism or some sort of market socialism, or even perhaps something more radical even than that. It's communism or something along those lines. And what we're trying to offer here is, I don't know if we want to call it a third way, but an alternative to those two narratives to say like, we can um, we can address past injustice without jettisoning yeah. uh, our liberal values. Yeah. And we have to, because yeah. the liberal values have, are what have led to flourishing, equality before the law, et cetera. And if we throw those out, we're going to go in a very bad direction. And so yeah. we're hopeful that we can offer conservatives um, and libertarians and perhaps even progressives, right, a narrative that acknowledges past injustice but enables us to address that past injustice, heal, and move forward as an, a political entity as a, as a nation as a community right whereas right now i think with like this you know debates over statues and other things like that we're seeing the sort of disintegration if you will uh of the polis we're seeing the disintegration of the community within this you know within our sort of geographic space and yeah. that could be really really harmful just as a historian um, before before i knew what critical race theory was i i did the masochistic thing of accepting a debate with don lemon from cnn <clears throat> and the head of the NAACP, and this is back when I was a Tea Party guy. And, and I, I suspected and, and turned out to be right that they wanted to debate whether or not I was a racist. Mm-hmm. And in the process of this, and this, I, I wouldn't, I'm not this masochistic anymore, but I was then. In the process of this, I used the phrase colorblind society. Mm-hmm. And, and I also quoted without attribution, um, you know, judge people based on the content of their character. And Don Lemon challenged me, and he's like, that's not right. And I, I was, this is the first time I realized that not, I thought we all agreed on this, mm. but, but we don't agree on this anymore. And it, it has now become, uh, critical race theory has become a thing, which, which to me is kind of the mirror image of, of uh, uh, white supremacy. It's, it's, mm. It is dividing people based on tribe and, and color and ethnicity. 
and all that stuff. And I, I think, um, you know, without sort of trashing that, you guys are offering this alternative vision of like, um, we got to work this stuff out. One of the things that I was most excited to discover in my research is this very pro-black classical liberal tradition, actually, uh, where you have people like Rose Wilder Lane writing at the Pittsburgh Courier. You know, she's one of the three mothers of libertarianism, and she's giving libertarian arguments for black freedom. She's trying to educate white people about lynching. <clears throat> You've got two of the founders of the NAACP are serious classical liberals. Of course, Frederick Douglass, right? Zora Neale Hurston, yeah. very much individualist. So you do have a pro-black classical liberal account that acknowledges the history that CRT is trying to address. Um, but I, I have to kind of stick it to us a little bit and say, you know, the reason that CRT has the power it has in the academy is because conservatives and classical liberals didn't necessarily take up that space in the conversation right. of giving their own account of what was happening to black people. And one of the examples I often use here is our beloved Hayek, who I love. But Hayek, who's writing about these institutions, never takes notice of the fact anywhere, as far as I know, and we did check with Bruce Caldwell, yeah. um, anywhere of the actual exclusion of blacks during Jim Crow, for instance. And so I think that CRT, it's like a vacuum, right? It gets it's sucked into that conversation. It kind of takes up all the space in the room because at least they're they're talking about uh, the abrogation of liberal laws that did occur. Yeah. And so that's yeah. why we need to come back strong and give our version of the story. The um, let's let's talk about eugenics because the uh, I'm 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 reminded of this. Um, I just reread Hayek's The Counter Revolution of Science, and it's not at all about eugenics. It's about an earlier, um, actually, the first generation of scientism, but. But how you know the the cloak of the science? I mean, we're still debating this today. But but how the cloak of of, of scientism involved tremendous abuses of government power um, and and the the arrogance and elitism and racism of the eugenics movement was was really just um, this belief that you could use power to make everything perfect mm -hmm. until we discovered through Hitler that that was just wickedly evil. Yeah, it's. I think it's really surprising for students. I think it's really, really surprising for most people. It's hard to get across to them just how racist America was from, I mean, the most racist period in American history, I, I think, um, is from around 1880, 1890 to about, you know, maybe to, to about World War II, um, but at least to the 1920s, because so many of the experts, and Rachel, you can talk to this with mm -hmm. specific details here in just a second, but um, actually believed, right, um, in scientific racism, pseudoscientific techniques to determine, who, you know, which people are superior to other people. And it's in this environment, well, you know, I know we're not talking necessarily yet about Booker T. Washington, but it's in this environment that Booker T. Washington gets handed the mantle of, like, leader of the race, and he's he's doing he gets condemned by everyone because he's in this horrific situation in which you know one of the reasons he writes his autobiographies the several books that he writes is to try and demonstrate that no like black people are capable of doing these things and being entrepreneurial and succeeding and they're not contrary to these claims that they're racially inferior they're not actually racially inferior i mean he uses his life as sort of you know the example of that and he tries to do that at Tuskegee as well um but i think many americans really struggle with the fact that um there's a really good book by uh, daniel rogers called atlantic crossings which talks about the interconnectedness of european thought um and american thought at this time and one of the ways in which that's happening yeah. is of course on eugenics as well and so 
yeah, you can speak to it in more detail. But. I mean, just the sheer popularity in the academic community of eugenics. We just forget about it. Was it was it was it a top down thing or was it a bottom up thing? Like was was this a um, a natural result of emancipation and people being anxious about black people having equal rights? So I think uh, is, it histo- is it yeah is it, I think from a historical perspective I think it it, it begins actually um, before I mean it just you, you can see tracks that it exists scientific racism that exists all the way back into like the 1830s um, and whatnot. But I think what it does is it it can Firms, right? Many of the racial bias and biases that exist within, you know, most, especially most Americans at the time. And so I think that, I think I would argue it's more of a top down process that then when people learn about it, they're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I you knew can, you that. You can feel better about your. Yeah, you can be like, well, the yeah. experts agree mm-hmm. with me. Like, I'm, yeah. you know, that I'm superior to these people. And that's really, that's sad. But I think that's the truth. I think that that racism already existed and then the sort of scientific racism, which was very present among the elites, which we know sort of provides an intellectual justification for Mm -hmm. what most white people already thought. And of course, one of the most surprising things for people to learn is that eugenics was the basis of the minimum wage concept. Yeah. Um, And it's totally explicit. It's not like a conspiracy Mm -hmm. theory that Marcus and I came up with. You just open these 1905, 1908 economics textbooks, ones that are used all over the country. And they're saying, well, literally, and I'm sorry to have to repeat this, but they say things like, well, we can't chloroform them all right now. So let's just raise the minimum wage high enough to disemploy them. Yeah. I mean, it's disgusting. Yeah. It really is. And it's anti-black and it's anti-immigrant and anti-women. Yeah. And many, many, many people during this time period when Booker T. Washington is really struggling, they believe that black people will cease to exist because they're inferior and there's sort of this, neat, this pseudo-Darwinian argument that like they're going to cease to exist because they're they're so inferior. It's It's... It's, it's extraordinarily dark if you read that uh, those in these chapters. It's it's it is really scary and dark. And I think that you know post post Hitler, like you said, I think that's when Americans sort of like wake up. We fought this racial regime abroad, right? And African Americans force white Americans to a certain extent to acknowledge this with the Double V campaign, right? Victory over racism abroad and victory over racism mm-hmm. at home. And so I think that hypocrisy really forced us um, to sort of take a look in the mirror. Uh, and of course, it took another six, another twenty years or so. Yeah. Um, but still, I think that was really important. I, I knew that I knew that John Maynard Keynes was a eugenicist, but you guys lay out um, very explicitly um, his conversations with Margaret Sanger and and other things. And and again, I'm going back to um, Hayek's critique of scientism because, it, of course, Keynes was a eugenicist because because he had that arrogance to think that he could mm. manipulate and reorganize um, the, the economy from the top down. And why not, why not do that to society as well? Um, and I, I, think, I think this has to be the basis of our, of our critique of, of government-endorsed or even government-created racial disparities that, mm-hmm. that you, you go on to outline throughout the book. Yeah, there's such a stereotype in people's minds of associating racism with conservatism. Mm. And you see that the most egregious um, harms to black Americans were actually brought about through progressive policy, major federal projects that were, you know, the largest spending outside of war, like the highway system, is what really destroys black communities. Not just, you know, your neighbor doesn't like you because of the color of your skin. That, That hurts but that's not gonna take away your home. 
What's going to take away your home is urban renewal, yeah. right? Or building a highway. What's going to blow up your neighborhood and your economic centers are these huge projects that are being put forward by progressives, Woodrow Wilson, you know, et cetera. And so it's really important that we get this history right because people have a very confused idea about yeah. our history of racism. Yeah, and I think it's important to mention just like Republican presidents as well, right? Eisenhower did it for, you know, national yeah. defense reasons, but Eisenhower ultimately like just allocates the resources to the localities, to the states and like, then those people who are in control, many of whom are mayors, uh, sort of municipal leaders who think they're struggling with a particular problem and now have the resources and the money to eradicate that problem, yeah. read between the lines, run the highway through the black, prospering black community, right? And then create like basically they've segregated communities quite literally. If you read The Color Concrete of Law, wall, yeah. right? Um, he does quite a good job of sort of uh, discussing this history. So so, so quite similar to the the... the the regulations of apartheid South Africa hmm. with minimum wage laws and, and limits on your ability um, to work and bans on interracial marriage and just geographically separating people so mm -hmm. that, that it was hard from Soweto, it was impossible to get to the places where the jobs were. Right. Uh, and we, so we did all that. Too. Yeah, so it's interesting because we have these debates about terms like structural racism, right? But if you look at this, I mean, it kind of makes sense from a libertarian perspective because what you're seeing is that it's not just you and me not liking each other, right? It's actually cascades of laws from the federal to the state to the municipal level mm -hmm. that are being forced on people so that they are not allowed to live next to each other. They're not allowed to go to the same shops. Yeah. It's not just the shop owner, right? It's the, it's the town or the state forcing that outcome. I mean, you actually have these amazing cases of private businesses trying really hard and suing to get out of these requirements because, of course, they're very expensive and they alienate their black customers, yeah. right? And so they're trying to sue in order to say, you can't force these costs on us that, that of segregation. Yeah. And you, so you do see a little bit of that market pushback against all of this, but you see how much the racist structure was imposed through law. Right. And that's it's a channel my old professor, Walter Williams, mm -hmm. in The State Against Blacks, um, his whole point is it's the collusion of racist sentiments with the power of the state mm. that ultimately creates these, um, and yes, you can call it structural racism, but it happens through government. Yes. Right. Structural racism is not sustainable unless you have a monopoly on force that, that makes it hard to break up. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the most egregious examples is, of course, uh, you know, the FHA loans that were they would not grant loans to um, Black Americans by and large because they wanted hom quote unquote homogenous neighborhoods, right? Yeah. Um, and so as a result, you have places like that you wouldn't even think. And then once again, this is Rothstein's book, you know, going in, in Oakland, right? We see segregation emerge in a place that you wouldn't you would think, okay, the South is where segregation. No, like many of our cities were segregated because of uh, the disparate, you know, sort of the ability of the disability of black Americans to get access to um, to bank loans in order to buy houses because the you know they wouldn't insure the FHA wouldn't insure the loans um, yeah. and so I think yeah I mean of course then Rothstein's like well the answer is massive government intervention at the end of his book and we're like <laughs> no stop like that was, government created the problem right we need to acknowledge this as libertarians and I think and as classical liberals and I think that it's really really important for our our progressive friends to recognize that as well, you know, because we just recently had uh, debates about, you know, what we're having a debate about what gun laws need to be enacted. And one of the things I always caution my progressive friends about is like, you understand that oftentimes when you pass legislation and regulations like this, it's ultimately going to disparately be enforced, right, uh, upon mm -hmm. black Americans. And so we have to be really, really 
cautious uh, about new legislation, new programs, etc. That we you, you know that we implement because it can have a disparate effect for whatever reason. You know, I was, I was picking on AOC earlier, but you may have noticed a couple days ago she actually yeah. said exactly that. You know, this this sounds good, but mm. the implementation of this is going to target people of color because that's just how it is. Yeah, and I think one of the most interesting things in the book is. You know, you have you absolutely have these projects that have racist intent, um, but then you you kind of shift right over time in the 20th century to projects that have good intent, but they still have terrible outcomes, right? Uh, like these gun control laws. Many of the people who are interested in these are not trying to send more black men to prison, but that is what will happen. And you see the same thing with the the Great Society. Uh, the welfare state. You see the same thing with the way that the unions control. But even, uh, but even yeah. like gun control's origins oh, yeah. um, are, are very racist. Yeah. Yeah. They're racial. Yeah, we have a whole section on gun control in the book. Yeah. Um, actually, all of the original gun control laws are anti-black specifically. Um, white men were actually encouraged to have guns, right? And particularly during the revolution, they were required to have guns. Yeah. Um, but you see a series of gun control laws throughout our history, and they are always anti-black, including the ones in the 20th century. So the Black Panther yeah. Party for Self-Defense, yeah. um, right, is patrolling their neighborhoods because they don't trust the police uh, with guns. People freak out about it. They march into the Capitol with their guns. They don't do anything. They're just holding them. Um, but that freaks people out badly enough that we start passing uh, gun control laws. Yeah. And so, and the NRA loves that law. Mm. You know, they, they're for that at that time. And so we really nail the NRA in the book too, because if you look at things like the Philando Castile case, here you have a licensed gun owner who did everything he was supposed to do. You should have spoken up yeah. for him. Or Breonna Taylor's boyfriend, you should have spoken up. These were licensed gun owners. Where are you? Crickets. 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 Yeah. But, you know, I, I do think there's, I think it's because we don't know history, but um, I would very much attribute um, popular support for a lot of these laws today as well-meaning but misguided. But it, it would be nice to remind them that almost everything that we're talking about when we talk about structural racism started with racists using the power of government. And e even, um, I'm not sure you say this in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, even the war on drugs, Yeah. Um, as I recall, Richard Nixon very much said this is to hurt black people so there's a there's a mixed story there we do have some comments um saying like we needed to undermine the black community so we were going to nail them on heroin and things like that but you also have a book like locking up our own by james foreman where he's talking about mm -hmm. washington dc and the huge amount of heroin use in the late 60s and he's saying actually we were all black it was all black leaders and they're looking at the situation there's kind of a medical model and there's a punitive model and it was actually the black nationalists yeah. who felt like they wanted to be punitive on these dealers because they didn't want the undignifying picture of methadone addicts, you know, shuffling sure. around. And so that's a really good example of how you can have something arise that is not the intention of white supremacy, right, in its origin, but it has that that exact outcome. Yeah. And so we just made a mistake. We should have gone with the medical model and we didn't in that moment. And you can feel some compassion for those black leaders because the heroin addiction was really, really bad, right? And so they panicked, but it got us, it sent us on a very bad road. So there was some racism and some not, but it all led to a system that needs to be totally dismantled. Yeah. Some racism, some not, but all sort of um, the hubris of saying, I'm going to use power to fix this problem. Exactly. Yeah. It's that addiction to central planning that yeah. you see in the progressive mindset. Yeah. 
Let's go back and, and for those who don't know the story, let's remind people what happened in Tuskegee. Yeah, so Booker T. Washington um, was asked basically to come down and to um, to be the new president of this 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 university that needed someone to sort of um, you know get provided guidance and a vision, and he ultimately accepts the job and he gets down there and it's literally like one building and they don't have a lot of means the community mainly white people in alabama are very hostile and what booker t washington does is he brings an entrepreneurial spirit and a can-do spirit to tuskegee and what they do is they literally build the university themselves right um, black america black students uh, along with uh, Booker T. Washington, the faculty, the administration literally build Tuskegee from the ground up. And they even like, you know, this famous story about they even like figure out how to make their own bricks because there's no brick producers in, in the area. And so Booker T. Washington's like, well, what if we did it ourselves? And they go through multiple, you know, it costs a lot of money, multiple sort of iterations to try and come up with a brick that would work. Um, and ultimately they're they're successful in, in doing so. And then they start selling the bricks to their white, uh, to white neighbors and people who, who needed this as well. And so they provide a positive benefit for the community. And Washington, of course, thought that a place like Tuskegee, which did focus on vocational training, because Washington believed that the way in which, um, at least I think based on Norell's book, mm. uh, Robert Norell's biography of him, the way in which you're gonna achieve political um, liberty in America is by achieving respectability through vocation. Um, once black Americans had uh, sort of put their buckets down, had become teachers, had become respectable, had become, you know, uh, prosperous, um, had created civil society, then white Americans would recognize that the scientific racism that they were being told about wasn't true, that um, there was mutually beneficial uh, exchange that was possible with black Americans and that it would uplift everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was his hope. The reality is that many white Americans and many white Alabamians had a zero sum mentality about progress and about prosperity, and many still do today, right? Uh, and, and so Tuskegee was constantly under attack and Booker T. Washington inherits from Douglas the mantle of leader of the mm -hmm. race, but he's so constrained in what he can say because he lives in the heart of Dixie. And so it opens up opportunities for people like W.B. Du Bois to, I think, unfairly criticize uh, Washington, who was doing a ton of activist work behind the scenes. And I, we know Du Bois was aware of this because Du Bois sues the Pullman company because the way he's treated on uh, the Pullman trains. And the person who bankrolls his lawsuit is Booker T. Washington. And, and so Du Bois knows this all is going on privately, that Washington's working behind the scenes to sort of get, you know, to attack these new racist constitutions in Alabama and Louisiana and elsewhere. Um, so he knows that's happening, um, but yet in public, you know, he breaks from Washington and condemns him for sort of focusing on economic uplift instead of on political uplift, when in the reality, Booker T. Washington was doing both. He just had to do the political part very, very quietly. And Tuskegee is a great example of sort of black, black uplift and success to this day. And one of the reasons we tell this story is because we want to show sort of the long story of civil rights, because mm. you don't get the civil rights movement if you don't have the middle and upper class black community that Washington built yeah. through the National Negro Business League. And so this idea of sort of economics versus political rights, it's like, no, no, no. You have to have economic flourishing to get those political rights. And it takes 60 years, but we get there. And so it's, you know, Madam C.J. Walker bankrolling the NAACP, right? It's John H. Johnson, the great publisher 
publisher who puts Emmett Till's picture in the magazine and, and really wakes America up to how blacks are being treated. The, if these people weren't in these powerful economic positions, they couldn't have made the difference politically. And one of the things, and this gets back to our, our, our sort of critique of the 1619 Project of CRT. And what we're trying to demonstrate in this chapter is that black entrepreneurship and African-Americans using the marketplace for uplift actually contributes to liberation, which yeah. is why the book is called Black Liberations in the Marketplace. You don't get the successes of uh, the Montgomery bus boycott um, in you know 1955 without um, uh, without you know, all the work that had been done previously. So like in 1905, there was from 1896 to 1905, there was a series of boycotts that were, you know, within the black community to try and boycott the trolley systems, etc., to force integration, to stop the discrimination, to get, you know, to attack the Jim Crow laws. Um, and Booker T. Washington supports that sort of quietly with some money behind the scenes. But it ultimately fails. And one of the things that I ask as a historian is, why did it fail in 1905 but succeeded 50 years later? And the answer to that is this thick civil society that was developed. So the Washington view of slow, gradual improvement. Um, one of the ways we see this manifest is through um, organizations, fraternal societies like the Black Elks, um, who had to fight legally to get to get, keep their name, and in the process created and trained black lawyers who ultimately end up going and serving in the NAACP once it's created. Um, and of course, later on, those people bankroll and, and provide money right for the emerging civil rights movement. And so it's this, this thick civil society that's created through entrepreneurship, through economic uplift, and ultimately through the marketplace, which enables um, the civil rights movement to have success. Um, I think part of the reason why Americans aren't aware of this is because I think we just don't teach it in high schools. Sure. It's like we teach about emancipation and then, hey, there's MLK. This is this is sort of Deirdre McCloskey's point about the democratization of, of she calls it innovism, but hmm. innovation and individual creativity that, that is one of the natural byproducts of free markets. I don't I don't like the C word so much because I think it yeah, I think it has some baggage, but <laughs> but free markets and you guys you guys apply that that sort of radical democratization to um, freed black Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually we could say the same. I love McCloskey and I love her work on virtue. We can say the same for the black church as kind of the cultural womb of black America, where you have one arena, even during slavery, in which black people actually have leadership and, and respect uh, uh, and, and sort of privacy, right? And out of this comes the great leap forward in literacy that we see in black America, the incredible value for education, and then many of these mutual aid societies and all just kind of the networking. James Baldwin talks about this. He says the church has to carry like kind of all of the networks of the black community because it was the one place where they really had to themselves. And so you see the power of that in the civil rights movement with Christian nonviolence, right? And it's just such an ethically sophisticated movement because the black church is 200 years old yeah. at that point, right? Yeah. And there's a vision of liberation that's coming from, you know, the story of Exodus. Yeah. So there's a lot of power behind that movement. And so that's a thick civil society institution. Yeah, MLK could not have happened no. without without that support structure. Right. And by the way, it's private. That's mm. the, that's, this gets, I hate to quote Hayek so much, but um, these robust private institutions yeah. solve problems and it, they weren't planned. Mm. They, they just, people just come together and do these things. And that, that to me is like, I am sort of hardcore skeptical of government power, um, even, even for things you want government to do well because mm. politics screws up everything. Right. Um, and, you know, even uh, this might be a great jumping off point for uh, the criminal justice system because you, of course, like one of the 
uh, proper roles of government is defend to defend life and property, um, but politics screws up everything. Right. So um, you guys both agree that there are racial disparities in the justice, the criminal justice system, the enforcement of it. Why does that happen? So um, there's actually a section in the back of the book where I show that we can attribute a lot of that to class differences. Um, for instance, inner city poverty is concentrated poverty. White rural poverty, right, is dispersed. So you're gonna have a different relationship with the police in that situation, whether you're black or white, you know. But I also show, and I go piece by piece, to show that even if you adjust for everything else, you still see disparities between the way that whites and blacks are treated in the criminal justice system. So there's some classism and there's still some racism too, for sure. So I think we can see that clearly. I think that we also need to acknowledge though, that a lot that's wrong with the criminal justice system is kind of boring bureaucratic stuff. It's like the prosecutor has too much power. Um, you know, the prosecutor's office is a black box. We don't know how they're deciding who to charge and how much to charge. Um, uh, public defenders aren't well funded. And so what we try to do is bring a little bit of a market idea to those uh, circumstances. And we draw here on Injustice for All by Jason Brennan and Chris Supernot who are saying, let's think about incentives, people. You know, if you have a pool of money that's funding both the defenders and the prosecutors, and you have to switch back and forth between the two as one of those lawyers in that pool, and even if you're rewarded in pay by how much you win, at least you're fighting equally for both sides. But what do we have right now? We have the prosecutor with the power of his entire office and the police behind his investigation. And then the criminal defender has, a uh, public defender has five minutes to look at your case. Yeah. So it's absolutely biased against people who don't have money, uh, who don't have resources, who don't have time. And so they get stuck and trapped in a, in a system that is just not serving us. It's not making us safer, yeah. right? It's just costing us money and it's costing us injustice. And it's destroying, it's destroying families, right? That's and right. communities. So if you're, if you're conservative, you should be extraordinarily concerned about this as well, right? Because it disproportionately locks up young black men. Um, it's mean, removing, have kids. removing fathers for yeah, the community. What's, what's the number? We, we, put, we put a bunch of kids in jail and it's disproportionately black men. Yeah, so at the moment we have, well, at least the numbers that I have in the book, um, we have, what is it, 2.2 million uh, in the prison system. I'm trying to drag this out of my memory. 700,000 are in jail. Hmm. So they're, they're, they're rotating in jail, which means that those aren't just 700,000 people. They're 700,000 people at a time. Yeah. So they're yeah. rotating in and out. And then our numbers are disproportionate. They're less than half of the jailed population is black, but the population of the United States is 13%. So it's far, far too high. Um, now, some of that is higher criminality in inner cities. So we're not denying that. We're not acting like it's supposed to be perfectly equal if you have black communities where there's high crime. Um, that's the case. But like I said, if you're out in the woods cooking meth, the police may never find you, right? right. And so there's there's a disparate uh, nature there to how things go. So our, our solution is really focusing on over-criminalization first, right? How much can we just get out of the criminal justice system? We have just too many laws, right? And then we go on to talk about uh, the prosecutor's office and things like that, right? Just practical ways that we can get these numbers down because we imprison more people than any other country in the world whose records are available. 
And I think criminal justice reform and ending the war on drugs would be tremendously beneficial not only to those communities that we've been talking about, but also to police. Um, one of my best friends is a former police officer. He's a you know he's a professor of criminal justice at Huntington College, and we talk all the time about the terrible situations that police are oftentimes put in because they're having to enforce drug laws, mm-hmm. and it's extremely dangerous, and it's got to be extremely psychologically difficult. And I think one of the things that uh, progressives and maybe libertarians to a certain extent could do a little better is empathize with police officers who are for, put in these positions where they have to enforce laws that they never should be enforcing. And so I think if we could pitch decriminalization, uh, you know, ending the drug war in a way that's that's not focused as anti-police, but also focused on sort of like there are benefits here, right, yeah. uh, to police officers as well. This is, you know, it maybe would depoliticize it a little bit. Yeah. Um, I just met the VP of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, mm-hmm. the LEAP organization, mm-hmm. and he was telling me about the, awesome. num- yeah. the numbers in Oregon. Yeah. Oh my gosh, he said pulling people over is down by 80%. Yeah. Because what was your excuse for searching the car? Hmm. You could pull them over for broken taillight. But if you want to search the car, you have to say, oh, I smell marijuana or I see some white powder on the on the dash, mm-hmm. right? Well, now you can't say that because drugs are decriminalized. And so they just don't bother to pull them over at all. Well, guess how fewer people will get into scuffles with the police if they're not getting pulled over. In the yeah, my place. friend uh, Jeff Singer, uh, <laughs> um, who is for uh, decriminalizing, I think, all drugs, but he's like, the, the, the paradigm isn't just um, prosecute to the full extent of law or do whatever the hell you want. The paradigm is criminalization versus harm reduction. Yes. And if, if you have a drug problem and you want to get help, but you're going to end up in jail and lose your kids, you're not going to do it. You're, you're probably going to spiral downwards. So that, that to me is something where um, hopefully conservatives, libertarians, and progressives could, could look at it um, with less of a sort of a reaction to, oh, we shouldn't do that, and more of a, well, what's actually happening? Yes, yeah, so we draw on that book, Prison Break, uh, how conservatives turned against mass incarceration in the book. And it's really interesting because you've got these like evangelical Christians in prison fellowship, right? Yeah, right, right? And they're meeting guys in jail and they're going, this guy's not really a danger. He's just kind of a knucklehead or he's a bad guy, but, uh, you know, he's, we're making him worse, right? And so they're kind of waking up to the uselessness of our prison system. Yeah. Then they meet the people at Pew Research and they look at the numbers and they're like, oh, my God, look at how much this is costing us. And we're, we're making things worse in terms of recidivism. And so they go on to actually in these deep red states like Texas and Georgia and Kansas and Oklahoma do some of the most aggressive criminal justice reform. It's really fascinating what happened. And so I think it is an area where we can kind of bust up those political tribes and really get something done. A quick shout out. And I want to wrap up, but I'll point out uh, a project that we've done. Uh, We produced a documentary called How to Love Your Enemy, a restorative Mm. justice story. And it's about a community in Longmont, Colorado, that has gone even further. Uh, restorative justice basically takes it out of the criminal justice system altogether. Real restorative justice, right. not the slogan, because uh, yeah. there are there are certainly DAs that just say it and let bad people out, and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about accountability and making victims whole. And I think I think it's it's a classic example of of bottom up, um, institution based problem solving, particularly for young people that make a dumb mistake. Because mm. you, 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 there's two paths at that mm. point. You can get yourself right, or you can go into the system and become a hardened criminal, and, and recidivism, we know what those numbers are. So I'll, I'll send that to you guys, because mm. you check that out. But let's, uh, let's wrap up by, um, you know, we've, we've talked about how innovation 
and markets have been the way that black Americans have either worked around or, or solved some of these um, structural government barriers to, to uh, freedom and integration. What's the, what's the takeaway you want for people? And I'll, I'll start with you, Rachel. Well, I always plug uh, one of the solutions I discuss in the book, which is called neighborhood stabilization. And that's because, you know, 80% of black America is above the poverty line. They're majority um, middle class. Uh, black America has been in many ways liberated through the marketplace, but we do have this 20%, right, that's still stuck. We do have this very stubborn poverty in the inner cities. And no matter whether we get all the policy changes we've just talked about right now, we have really destabilized neighborhoods where there's just going to be a gap. There's going to be an inability and bandwidth for people to take advantage of the marketplace unless civil society steps in. So there's this wonderful movement that I just call neighborhood stabilization. And I'm talking about books like Toxic Charity by Bob Lupton or When Helping Hurts by Brian Ficker, where they talk to us about the way we do our philanthropy and our charity. And they're saying, you know, you're just sort of imitating the welfare state, right? It's faceless. You're handing out things mm -hmm. from a soup kitchen. This is not going to help people transform their lives. Instead, we have to go into the neighborhood, live with people, walk with them through life, hyper local, block by block, eight to 10 years of loving personal presence per block, right? But, but it's happening. It's happening in Atlanta. It's happening in St. Louis. It's really, really exciting. And frankly, I think it's kind of the only solution because so much destruction has occurred in these very isolated, ghettoized neighborhoods that you have broken down the basic things like family structure and employment networks. And the only way we're going to fix that is by bringing our networks and our mentoring in to the neighborhood and presenting an alternative right there on that street to those 13, 14, 15 year old kids, right? Yeah. And saying, hey, here's how you make money. Come work in the community garden. I'll train you, I'll teach you job skills. And those kids, 95% in, in my group, Love the Lou in St. Louis, are going to school, getting jobs, graduating high school, not joining the gang. Because they don't really want to do that. They saw their older brother or cousin get shot or go to jail. They don't want that life. It's just that they have no alternative in that little four to six block area, which is their whole world. Yeah. And so we have to bring that alternative into the world. World. And it's really exciting work. I hope people will will join in. Bottom up, face to face. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think the big takeaway, you know, if I wanted to leave viewers with like with, with one thing, is that this book, what we're trying to offer, right, Americans, is this third way where we acknowledge past injustice. We can speak um, very knowledgeably about these things. We can embrace things like transitional justice, like they're doing in Tulsa, Oklahoma, trying to heal communities on very concrete elements of injustice that have happened in the past. So we can we can acknowledge the past injustice, but we cannot, 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 cannot jettison, right, the liberal values that, while imperfectly applied over the course of the last 250 years or so, um, are essential for prosperity and flourishing. And so if we're going to, if we're actually going to solve the problem, right, um, the book offers, you know, markets, it offers liberalism as the answer, not as the problem. And so we can't embrace, you know, CRT and, and the 1619 project, and we can't continue to fall back on old tropes that have been sort of, that are incorrect, right, historically. We have to move forward, address past injustice, uh, but not jettison our liberal founding. So people are going to have to read the book because I wanted to talk about the, the Tulsa massacre when, of course, we didn't get a chance to do that. Um, we didn't talk about uh, the corruptions in the education system at all, mm. which could be a whole nother episode. But uh, how do people get the book and how do people find you guys? 
Amazon.com, 18 bucks. We actually wanted it to be both very readable for just regular people, but also very affordable. So we asked them to take it straight to paperback. So it's just 18 bucks on Amazon. I'm at Liberty Ethics on Twitter. You can link in or Facebook with me as well. And you can find kind of everything we do in terms of speeches and articles at RachelFergusonOnline.com. Yeah, and I'm on Twitter at, at Marcus Widger. So. It's quite it's, simple. By the way, it's shockingly readable for two academics like yourselves. <laughs> Thank you. I consider that a compliment. That's the highest praise. We worked Thanks. hard on it. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed that show, make sure that you like and subscribe. Click the little bell so that you get notifications. And if you consume this via podcast, go wherever you want to go. We're everywhere. Kibbe on Liberty. The revolution starts now.